Simon Woodroff is the founder and creative driving force behind the Yo! Super brand. He left school at just 16, worked as a roadie, a stage designer and a television executive, all before he decided to go into business for himself at the age of 40. He spent two years setting up Yo! Sushi and in 1997 opened his first conveyor belt sushi restaurant here on Poland Street. Now Yo! Sushi became an overnight phenomenon and has since continued to grow both at home and abroad. And it's paved the way for many other Yo! projects under the umbrella name Yo! Everything Else, which Simon hopes will rival the most famous of super brands like Easy and Virgin. How did you first come up with the idea for Yo Sushi? I was sitting in a restaurant with a guy I knew from the TV business, a guy by the name of Mr. Uahara, at the age of 42, down in the dumps, thinking, what am I going to do? Going out to the world to find out, you know, to ask people their advice, what could I do, you know? And we were eating sushi. And I said, what about sushi? I love sushi, and it's always so expensive in London. And he had, there was a bit of a sort of oriental silence, and he was obviously thinking. And my dad always used to say, you know, wait till the silence ends. So I let him have a bit of space, and he looked up in the silence, and he said, what you should do, Simon, he said, is a conveyor belt sushi bar with girls in black PVC miniskirts. And that's exactly what he said. You know, in that moment... I remember thinking to myself, you know, it was a sort of eureka moment because I didn't know what they were. I'd never heard of conveyor belt sushi bars. In my sort of, you know, schoolboy brain, it was like having the electric train set going around the dining room table delivering the marmalade in the morning, you know. And I went back and found out and two years later I opened the first Yo Sushi in Poland Street. You left school quite early at the age of 16. How would you say that's affected your career progression? Well, when you leave school at 16, especially if you were brought up and sort of, you know, rather sort of English upper middle class. Not a great deal of money. My father was a senior army officer and my mum was a sort of bit sort of virgin on the aristocratic, that is. And um, so, you know, one was expected. And this was sort of, you know, the hippie days at the end of the 60s, you know, when we used to do peace signs and mean them and all of that, you know. And I left school at 16 and, you know, you weren't supposed to do that really in those days. Um, but and after a couple of halcyon years, you know, doing everything that we did in those days, I do remember thinking that my dad was sort of right and having a bit of money did oil the wheels of life and with no qualifications to fall back on, you think, well, what can I do? So I lived on my wits, you know, and I got a job as a roadie and then I became a stage designer and various things, but it was, I was always looking how to earn a living because I was unemployable effectively. So how did it affect me not having any qualifications? Absolutely enormously. It's dictated the entire pattern of my life because you know, if I'd been, been from the East Ender, I would have had to duck and dive, you know, the duck and divers. So yes, it was, I think, you know, of people, there are statistics that of people who leave school with two O-levels, two GCSEs, I think 30% go on to make success of their lives and 70 probably don't, you know, depending on how you judge that. So I wouldn't recommend it as a course 
But if you have got some motivation and you're willing to go out and do it, it is a, certainly a big driver. You've had a rather colourful past, some might say. Would you say that's helped you touring with the likes of the Rolling Stones to then be successful in your business? Well, I was a bus conductor. Um, I worked in a factory making Milky Vit, which is powdered milk for cows. I never told anybody that, actually. You know, the first exclusive for you. Um, and I was, um, and then I got a job as a, in the theatre, and then I was a roadie, and I did lots of things, you know, and I, I went out on tour with a lot of the rock bands of the 70s, and about middle of the 70s, I remember seeing the, we used to see these shows, and I'd be doing a spotlight or the lighting board or whatever it was, and I think if you, these could be big spectacles, these big shows, and I'd tell them ideas, and eventually, actually Rod Stewart, eventually picked up on one of them and I did a big white stage for them and I went from being the sort of the lighting roadie and then the lighting designer to the stage designer and this sort of new word was invented in a way it was there right at the beginning of an industry you know uh, who's the designer on this show you know you used to have them before you used to have the bloke who did the lights you know and the whole thing grew up and I grew up with it and I did that till 85 which is the year of Live Aid when I remember looking around thinking you know, I've got to get out of this before I get found out, because I'd had no training, and I'd, I'd just done it. In fact, I'm very proud of what I did now, but uh, the whole world grew up at that day, and that's when I went in to first, um, I became a television executive, really, sold the rights to rock music shows to TV stations, and then went on from there. Why did you suddenly decide to go into business in your early 40s? I remember thinking to myself, it was a sort of tear-your-hair-out moment. I thought, I've completely forgotten to become a millionaire. And it was a sense of, I'm going to run out of time, which is why I'm a believer in people over 40, over 50, actually. They're very investable, because unless you do it now, you're going to run out of time. Restaurants are extremely high risk. You know, they're also extremely profitable if you get them right. And I think there was a dichotomy because the rational side, the intelligent side of me, knew that restaurants were extremely high risk. But the emotional side, actually for 90% of the time in the two years that I put it together, actually believed that this could be an enormous success. I say could be because there was still probably a 5 or 10% and a moment at 4 o'clock in the morning on a cold winter's night that I'd wake up thinking, what am I doing? You know, putting everything I've got on the line, which is what I did. But no, emotionally, I believed it. I thought that it had a bloody good chance. In 2006, you were awarded an OBE. Did you ever imagine that you'd be awarded something like that in your lifetime? I've won lots of awards along the way, and I'm very proud. I'm so quite proud of the OBE. Pity my mum didn't live to see it. She would have really loved it. But um, you get a letter when you get one of these things. In fact, Stelios told me that he had the same thing. And the letter's from this sort of rather old-fashioned department of the government in St. James's, the controller or whatever it is of, you know, of her, at Her Majesty's wishes. The Prime Minister has asked if you would be willing to accept this thing. It was always a lovely old-fashioned thing, except the OB. And then at the top it says, um, if you're in agreement and would like Her Majesty to do this, please fill in the enclosed ethnicity form, which I thought is the, you know, the, you know, as if they don't know that I'm a white Caucasian, you know, I mean, it's so politically correct, isn't it? It's you know, the old meets the new. How important is branding in business? 
all I know is what's important in our business. And yes, brand is enormously important, but you know, brand, all brand is, is a reflection of how good you are at service, how good you are at design, how good you are at the quality of the product, the food or the hotel bed or whatever it is. Um, so more and more, all, you know, it's been said so many times that all brand is, is a reflection of the substance of what it is. <coughs> so I don't believe that brands can be invented by advertising agencies. I have to think that the modern brand has to reflect the true nature of the people and the individuals behind the brand. How important is innovation to success? I think you can have a corner shop, innovate nothing at all and make a big success out of it. Or you can have the most innovative idea in the world and make a failure of it. I personally like innovation. I happen to, that's my little thing. I want to do innovation on a big scale and I want it to be radical because that's the only way I feel safe. So I wouldn't make a statement saying innovation is important to every business. You can, you know, do something the same as somebody else and just do it much better and you can do very, very well. But for me, innovation is, we have a thing we call can I, C-A-N-I question mark, standing for constant and never ending innovation. And gone are the days in my book where you can say, um, you know, we'll roll that out for the next 10 years. For us, every Yosushi we open, um, they've done something different. So would you ever consider taking Yosushi to Japan? Um, I've talked about taking Yosushi to Japan for years, and there's so many things to do in the places we already are. Um, people ask us, why did we do the first ever you know, sushi over abroad in Greece? Why have we done so many in the Middle East? The truth was that we never had a strategy to go to Greece, France and, and Middle East. They were opportunities that came up while we were extremely busy trying to get 50 restaurants going in the UK. You appeared in the popular show Dragon's Den. How important would you say programmes of that kind are in encouraging entrepreneurship in the UK? Oh, it's inspiring. It's inspiring. I mean, you hate The Apprentice, love The Apprentice, hate Dragon's Den, love Dragon's Den. Um, you know, there are kids growing up in the school playgrounds who are no longer saying, I want to be a footballer like David Beckham or a model like Kate or whatever it is. They're, they're growing up saying, I want to be one of those entrepreneurs. They're cool. And actually, what they do isn't that very clever because I've seen those entrepreneurs on Dragon's Den, you know, the new ones that are coming in to pitch their eyes. They're not clever. I could do better than that. You know, so in that sense, it's all the apprentice guys. It's not so rocket science. So in that sense, it's exposed that business is common sense for the most part. Um, and I, I think that you're going to see an awful lot more people leaving school thinking I could go out and do something. You know, when you actually look at the risks inherent in having a career, of changing your careers, of doing things, you know, that thing that the careers officer told me when I was a kid, you can't go into business, 95% fail. You know, even if a large percentage do, it's not 95%, it's probably about 60 by the way. But, um, you know, what they don't tell you is what happened to those individuals after the business failed, when they brought them back and started for them again, when they started another business, where they learned from it and moved on. You know, the one thing that you see repeatedly among entrepreneurs is that most of them fail. In fact, the thing that everybody forgets is that entrepreneurs don't go unsuccessful. People, millionaires, don't go around succeeding all day. They're actually willing to be rejected. They're willing to fail. They're willing to be said no to, and they can dust themselves off without making it all personal. So how do you make an idea work? To make an idea happen, the first thing is, is what most people do, is they sit around going, shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I? And the answer is, don't decide, don't decide, but start, you know, and start means 
in this moment now, in this conversation with you, start talking about what my idea is. You know, people say, I don't, do somebody else steal my idea? People don't steal ideas for the most part, not unless it's patentable. Get your notebook, start writing it out. And what I always do is I say, I have a ban on my brain. It's a, I call it the three second rule. One, two, three. You're not allowed to think for more than three seconds about whether it's going to work, whether it's not going to work, whether you're going to do it, whether you're not going to do it. But instead, you put in a bit of money, put in a bit of research, you start doing it. You might have two or three things on the go. Another great idea is get rid of your TV set. Don't give up your day job, just get rid of your TV set. That means there's a whole lot of extra time of the day when you can actually get going and start working on your idea and run the two things in parallel. Um, but most people think, oh, shall I do it? Shall I? You don't need to make the decision. You know, three months later, you might decide to make the decision. Three months, interesting period of time, nearly 100 days, you know, 1% improvement a day in the three months, you know a great deal more about it. You're in a better position to make a decision. What really drives you in business? What drives me in business is um, the idea is really what drives me. Uh, the obsession with an idea, the obsession with wanting to see what it will actually look like, much more so than uh, the desire for great wealth and pleasure. What also drives me is the fear of it all going wrong. What advice would you give budding entrepreneurs out there? I don't know. You ask me on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, I'll tell you a different thing every day. But um, I will say that I never met anybody who went out to follow their dream and regretted it, regardless of whether they later succeeded or failed. Um, but I met many, many people who looked back from later in their life and said, um, I wish I'd grasped that opportunity and taken a few more risks in my life and gone out to fulfill my dreams because you only live once.